half a century ago, if you had a job, it was expected that you were loyal to your company and your company was loyal back to you. There were things called pensions, for example. Now, can we even call what we have to our employer a relationship? This is Game Plan. Rebecca Greenfield. And I'm Francesca Levy. And this week we're talking about the relationship between workers and their employers and how that has become a lot more tenuous over time. This was brought to our attention because of this really interesting Wall Street Journal article that came out this week by Lauren Weber. It was called The Second Class Office Workers, and she dives into this world of contract workers. She says there are millions of them, and they're people who work at companies next to full-time employees, often doing the same work, but they're not full-time employees, so they don't get the benefits associated with that. Yeah. And especially, I think, when you sign on for years and years as one of these contract workers, you can really suffer from not getting some of those benefits. Um, There was another article a couple of months ago in The Guardian that featured a family, a husband and wife who both work for Facebook in the cafeteria. So they're contract workers. They're not technically employed by Facebook. But and they're actually paid pretty well hourly, but that puts them in sort of a weird in-between space where they're not full-time employees, so they don't qualify for the company health insurance, but they make a little bit too much money to qualify for any state or federal uh, medical benefits. So I think that contract workers can get sucked into this sort of middle space for years and years because a lot of companies have, have used this contractor scheme as a way to basically get the equivalent of a full-time worker without the benefits. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal article goes into a lot of the darker sides of having that weird relationship. So, of course, yeah, you don't get health insurance benefits, but you also can be fired at pretty much any time. And also, you culturally have a weird relationship to your employer. So she talks about how people have different badges, for example. And that is something that seems really innocuous, but it does make people feel like they're second class citizens or lesser than. I think those little slights can add up. You know, it's like especially if your coworkers are kind of always reminded that you're not one of them. Like if you're all doing the same work, like you said, but they all got any email that you didn't because you're not on some official list. And so you don't get to go to some big company wide meeting. It's like those things don't really matter, but they constantly remind you that the company isn't investing in you the same way it's investing in its other employees. Yeah. And she points out to relationships that these people have with their managers are often weaker because, like you said, it's it's just not the same investment. I'm really glad that the journal dug into this issue of contract workers because it really is fascinating. And I think it's kind of not talked about enough. But we can back up and look at this from an even broader angle. And I think there's a bunch of different ways that the traditional relationship between the employer and the employee is breaking down. Yeah, I first think of the gig economy, which is this promise from tech companies that we can be free from the shackles of traditional employment and have flexible schedules and the work we want if we work at Lyft or Uber or companies like Fiverr or TaskRabbit. You already have a car and an apartment, so why not let it work for you? Exactly. And I I remember when these first came out, people were buying into that. And this coworker of mine, when I used to work at Fast Company, wrote this article where she tried to live off of the gig economy and basically learned that she was making less than minimum wage and didn't have any marketable skills. Yeah. (laughs) She was like, yeah, I'm not a handyman. 
um, people were paying me like $5 an hour to bag jewelry and I couldn't get enough gigs to make enough money. And I think that is a reality of of a lot of people who are doing this. Yeah. If you're doing any kind of freelance work at all, you, you have to do a lot of hustling that's unpaid around any job you get. So when you shrink that down to like little tiny micro modules of work, you're still doing all of that. Like you're going from job to job if you're a task rabbit. You're not getting paid for that. And so it just becomes, I think, it could easily eat up your life. Yeah. And then just like the contract workers, you don't get benefits. You don't really have an employer. There's no stability. You don't get any of those comforts that used to come with a traditional salaried job. You don't get job security. You don't get sort of time to figure out your next step and do your own thing without having to worry about constantly making money. And generally the contract between employers and employees has just changed. I feel like this sense that a company owes you something and you owe them something is disappearing. What you're talking about is company loyalty. And that's not something that even full-time employees have any expectation of having with their employers. But how do we get to this point? Our guest today is Rick Wartzman. He's the author of The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Right now, in many different ways, the contract between the worker and the employer is weaker than ever. We want to know, how did we get to this point? Well, it's a, it's a long story, and there are many forces that have uh, you know, really put pressure on workers. We know about globalization and the rise of competition from low-wage countries. Automation and technology certainly over decades has, has had an effect uh, on uh, certain industries in, in particular uh, and put downward wage pressure and, and uh, eroded job security uh, for many workers. You've had the decline of unions, which has been uh, a really important factor as well. Mainly from my reading of history, uh, employers really set out to uh, just crush organized labor, and they've, they've done quite a good job of that. We've gone from you know, 25 up to 35 percent or so of the private sector workforce being unionized to just about 6 percent today. Um, so that's had a huge effect. And then the last element, which I think has just amplified all of these things, is uh, this shift in corporate culture. And I, I talk a lot about this in my book, this shift from a real stakeholder mindset, where in this post-war period from, say, the late 1940s to the early 70s, companies uh, explicitly talked about how they were trying to balance the interests of all their constituencies. So the communities they operated in, their customers, uh, their shareholders, to be sure, but also their workers. And that has given way to a, uh, a predominant culture of trying to maximize shareholder value. And when you put investors above all those other stakeholders, including workers, uh, the pie gets carved up differently. And sure enough, investors have gotten a bigger slice and workers have gotten a lesser slice. Your book looks at the corporate histories of four American corporate giants, GM, GE, Coca-Cola, and Kodak. What would you say it was like to work at companies like that during what you see as sort of the golden age for workers? Yeah. So the first thing I should say is this golden age um, came with a big asterisk. So this post-war period, again, you know, from mid to late 40s up to the early 1970s, was golden mainly for white men. People of color and women were 
really blatantly discriminated against uh, in the workplace and hadn't entered the workforce in uh, the numbers that they certainly began to in the 60s and 70s and has accelerated through today. And of course, many still face tremendous blatant discrimination in, in lots of ways. But this again, this was really a golden age for white men. Um, that said, uh, there was a huge swath of, of the workforce that was lifted up and saw steadily rising pay and benefits and good job security. And good benefits, I should say, on both kind of the healthcare front where a company provided health coverage, just got steadily stronger in terms of what it would cover and who it would cover in terms of bringing in your family members if you were an employee, uh, and very solid retirement security. I mean, there were full pensions back in those days, not, uh, not just 401k type plans. Um, and that was true across these four companies. And then over the last 40 years, uh, the story has really been the same. You've seen eroding job security. You've seen an erosion in benefits. You have seen pay that has been stagnant uh, for many workers. Even companies like GE um, have gone, you know, at least we're going for a while to a two-tier wage system in their factories so that they could pay new workers less. And so you've seen the decline in the corporate social contract. And of course, you have four very different companies, two in uh, General Electric and Coca-Cola, that over this entire 75-year arc have done quite well. And then you've had two that, of course, have really struggled, right? You had General Motors that went into bankruptcy and is, you know, a shadow of what it was at its height. And Kodak that also went bankrupt and is, you know, a much, much tinier, very different company than it was at its heyday. But it doesn't matter if you work for one of the successful ones in Coca-Cola and GE or one of the real laggards in GM or Kodak. As a worker, the story was pretty much the same. Um, the social contract rose and then it unraveled. You mentioned organized labor. Was that the only motivation for companies to treat employees this way? No, not at all. Um, so coming out of uh, World War II, I think there were uh, several forces at work um, that set off this golden age. So one was these big U.S. companies at that time, they could just frankly afford to be extremely generous. We had as a nation, bombed our global competition to its knees. And many look at it, and I think there's a lot of truth to this. This was an extraordinary time, an exceptional time, uh, because these were exceptional circumstances. These big U.S. companies produced an inordinate amount of the world's goods. Um, again, there was very little competition. So that was one thing. And then on the home front, by the way, you also had all these returning uh, servicemen and coming back from the war, and it set off the baby boom and the emergence of really the great American middle class, this giant rise of the middle class. Another was, um, there was some fear at this time. There was concern about all these returning service men and some, some service women, but mostly men coming home, tens of millions of them who had, who had been off to war. Now they were coming back. And a lot of corporate leaders express the concern that unless we provide good jobs with good benefits and good security, we may end up with another Great Depression on our hands, uh, perhaps one that would be even worse than what unfolded in the 1930s. And in turn, the fear was that if that happened, there might be long bread lines again, and capitalism might actually give way to socialism or, you know, God forbid, communism on American soil. And so there was some feeling that we've got to provide and provide well for people or the capitalist system itself might 
be at risk. So fear was an impulse. There was also an impulse of just keeping the economy humming. There was a, a common kind of almost Keynesian notion back then that you got to put enough pay in people's pockets so that they can keep this great consumer economy going. Um, there's a great quote early in my book from Charlie Wilson, the president of General Electric, who said something like, how are they going to buy my refrigerators if we don't give them enough wages to do it with? And this was a very common kind of thinking that, uh, that you know, prevailed in, in corporate culture then. Um, and some, interestingly, today have raised this concern, right? Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, has sort of raised the question, have wages stagnated for so long to the point that it may be cutting into consumer spending and the overall growth of the economy? And he's talked about this secular stagnation um, from essentially just not paying people enough, not compensating them all enough. And then finally, I'd say that the other, again, big factor is there was just a different mindset. I think coming out of the Depression and World War II, um, corporate leaders uh, really thought in we terms. You know, we're kind of all in this together. That was the kind of national culture. And I think it was reflected and reinforced by corporate culture. And I think as America shifted more to an I from a we kind of ethic, um, that's also been reflected in uh, in corporate culture. And again, we've gone from the stakeholder mindset to a maximized shareholder value mindset. And when did that corporate mindset start to change and why? So it, it really started, I mean, some people trace it to uh, an article that Milton Friedman, the University of Chicago economist, wrote a famous piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine in 1970. I believe it was the fall of 1970. And in it, he said that business really has one social responsibility. And that was, that was the words he used. And he said that uh, this social responsibility was for managers to act as the agents of the shareholders. Um, that was their only job. And shareholders uh, wanted one thing. They wanted profits to go up and in turn stock price to go up. And that was pretty much what executives and managers were there to do. And for them to do anything else, including trying to foster employment, was in Friedman's words, I believe I have this correct, he said that was just uh, practicing pure and unadulterated socialism. And so this, this idea um, called agency theory, um, which maybe began with Friedman, but there were certainly other thinkers. I mean, this was a period when people began to hold up the marketplace is something sacrosanct. And if we just let the market do its job, it would take care of a lot of our, our problems. Um, there was a whole school of thought that rose up around this in business schools, in law schools, among economists. And, and before long, this sort of went from the ivory tower and began to permeate the realm of practice. And then the last piece was uh, CEO pay began to be explicitly linked to um, how stock price did. So CEOs are always compensated uh, with stock and stock options. Even if you go back to the 1950s or 60s, you see that as part of their compensation packages. But it was a pretty tiny part, you know, a small fraction. Now, depending on how you measure it, it's somewhere between 50 and 80 percent for a typical big company CEO. His, and it's mostly his, uh, you know, or her pay is now tied to stock. And so when you do that, it becomes in their interest, you know, it's their own personal interest to try and drive up share price in the short term. And uh, when you do that, you know, what's, what's the quickest way to do that? Well, you, you cut costs and suddenly employees look like costs, an avoidable expense, not really like something you want to invest much in. 
I'm wondering if it was really better for a lot of workers back then. And I know you mentioned some of the things like how maybe people like me and Francesca wouldn't be included in this Mm -hmm. idyllic version of the workplace. But was it are we looking at this with rose colored glasses a little? To some degree. Yeah, we, we definitely are. And I think this is particularly true as President Trump has romanticized a lot of these old manufacturing jobs and coal jobs and so on. You know, first of all, they were they were brutal. Um, I mean, they were they were often you know just backbreaking and um, dangerous, uh, and um, you know there's a lot of uh, recorded evidence and oral histories you know that I've I've read and a lot referenced in my book, Worker Voices, that talked about how tough these jobs were. But again, they put you at least on a, on a solid economic footing. You had good pay, you had good medical benefits, you had good retirement security. Um, your, your kids could do well. They could, you know, you could afford to send your kids to college. They were often the first generation that went. So there, you know, there were some real advantages, uh, that way. They were probably not as good jobs in, in some other ways, even if you had more of a technical job, say at a general electric in the old days, it was much more of a kind of, I think, paternalistic, bureaucratic, top down kind of system. It probably wouldn't have been as enjoyable you know, again, depending on, I'm sure it varies department to department and manager to manager, but right, we, we've moved to a corporate culture on the high end where there's a lot more collaboration, where there's a lot more uh, team orientation, you know, where there is some flexibility, where, where good companies like GE try and coax ideas from the bottom up. Um, and, and it's a bit more of a meritocracy than it probably was in, the, in that so-called golden age. So some things are better about it now, I think, by and large, across the board. Um, But again, I think those things are largely reserved for people who have the skills and knowledge to take advantage of that part of the employment system. It's clear we're never going back to this golden age that you described, like even high-skilled workers who have the best benefits right now don't have pensions, for example. But are there things being done to make things better? Uh, you know, look, the, the things that I think may make things better, particularly on the knowledge worker end, younger millennial employees, in, all the evidence shows want to work for companies and are putting pressure on their employer uh, to have the right values and to work at a place uh, that is trying to make the world better. And even though, again, if, you, if you're coming out of college and, and you're, you know, you, you land one of these knowledge jobs, talent and you're, you're being recruited, you know, you're probably going to do okay yourself. But I think there's also increasing demand to say, you know, we want to work at a company that treats all of our workers down to those on the front lines, our colleagues on the front lines that may not be, you know, maybe in more of a, a low skill kind of job. We want them treated right too. Um, and so I think there's pressure coming from, you know, the employee side. I think there are pressures coming from the consumer side um, where, uh, you know, there's more and more access to information, a lot of it digitally now, where you can, you know, you can go on Glassdoor or Payscale or uh, this online bank aspiration has this app that you can use where you can uh, look at the places you're shopping. You know, they know through your debit card purchases and online bill paying where you shop and they'll rate the merchants where you're going. They'll give them a people score and a planet score, right? How, how where I'm shopping, do they are they in line with my values? And, you know, they'll sort of benchmark it against other merchants that sell the same stuff. Maybe maybe they'll be, I think there's pressure that is coming from consumers and, and more pressure that way. 
Um, you know, we've seen what happens at, you know, an, an Uber, for example, right? They didn't add a tipping option, I think, for their drivers out of, you know, because out of the goodness of their hearts, you know, they did so because there was pressure from, right, from workers wanting their, from, sorry, from consumers wanting their workers treated better. So um, I think that's another avenue where, where maybe we're going to start to see some, some pressure and things moving in the other direction. And then, of course, investors. A lot of the kind of socially responsible impact investing has been more on the environmental side of things. Um, but I think that there is a, a movement to, to try and look at ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics that also cover the people side and that um, social, people are interested in impact investing and socially responsible investing. Um, you know, that's a real place. The capital markets can, can leverage pressure against companies to do the right thing, treat their people right in terms of compensation, in terms of investing in their training, making sure that they're following labor standards and, uh, and so on. So I think those are all pressure points that I think companies are beginning to feel how quickly and how forcefully they can, you know, add up and overcome this maximize shareholder value mindset. Mm, you know, I, I, I don't know if we'll be strong enough to, to roll things, you know, back or how far. Yeah, it sounds like the only way companies do anything is if they feel like they have to. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming to talk to us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So there's a perfect example of the shareholder value principle that Rick was talking about that I read about a couple months ago. American Airlines announced that it was giving pay raises to its pilots and its flight attendants. And basically, Wall Street freaked out and the stock went down. Wow. So the specific thing that Wall Street was upset about was that basically American was giving like a little leg up to its workers. And it's funny because Rick was saying that, you know, maybe one hope we have for things turning around is consumers putting pressure on companies. And I guess in this case, like for consumers, you want happy flight attendants and pilots and everybody's always complaining about how terrible the flying experience is. So maybe what it would take to convince American Airlines shareholders that it's good to give pay raises is if consumers hated the experience so much that they demanded it. And then that sent the company's stock price down. But it seems very roundabout. It's honestly hard to think about how we could get back to anything that Rick is talking about for lots of reasons. Like, I even think that he said that these pressures we see from consumers are small. But I also think, you know, he was talking about how there were a lot of people that were left out of this economy and left out of this great world. And, you know, he described it as an effect. But I wonder if that is almost why it was that way. When you're leaving out a lot of people of the competition, it it creates a scenario where more where, yeah, where all the white men can be the ones who succeed. Well, he did say that there has been some pushback in academia and people, you know, in the and how economists think about this to the theory that, you know, shareholder value above all is most important. So maybe over time, the zeitgeist changes to where we can actually convince investors that companies make more money by treating their employees better. But it does seem like the only way things really change is if it's in the economic interests of corporations. Yeah, I see that a lot in my reporting. All of the benefits trends are at companies that are having trouble hiring. So you want to hire the best people? You have to treat them well. I think that the hard thing is, and he mentioned this a little bit, is just that there are fewer people that fit into that bucket. So people are trying to think of ways where more people 
can be included. Maybe we'll get there one day. And now it's time for Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. You can call into our hotline and leave us your own half big take at 212-617-0166. Francesca, what's your half big take? It's about work karaoke. A favorite topic mm-hmm. on this a show. Recurring theme on game plan. Uh, it should be against the rules in some kind of corporate manual or just, you know, you should get reprimanded by your manager. If you go to any kind of karaoke, but let's keep it work related. If you go to work karaoke and don't sing, you should just be required to do it. Of course, you're going to look dumb. That's the point. You can't go and watch everyone else. You don't get the privilege of watching everyone else make a fool of themselves. The contract you make is that we're all going to look equally dumb. Doesn't work as a bonding if not everyone does it. I'm actually going to go one step further because I feel strongly that private room karaoke is kind of a joke. No, it's fun. I know everybody loves it because you get to order your dumplings no, and, everyone and gets have the beers. And, but you know what happens? Everybody gets too comfortable because there's not enough humiliation oh my God. <laughs> and there's not enough vulnerability. And everybody sends, ends up singing along to every song and everyone's just shouting over each other by the end. If there is some public humiliation, like a bar full of drunken people that you don't know, and you have to get up in front of them and sing, it just raises the stakes a little and it makes your performance really special. Also, I really like watching people sing who can't sing. I just think everyone should know that you're an above average singer and that's why you don't mind the humiliation. But very Machiavellian. Okay, thank you for saying that. (laughs) Uh, I don't enjoy watching people be humiliated. I actually find that when people can't sing and they know that they can't sing, it's one of the sweetest things in the world to watch them sing. Like, I love watching people sing Happy Birthday because it's like they're not singing Happy Birthday to show off how good they are at singing. They're they're doing it to, like, celebrate. But then you hear everyone sing off pitch. And I actually think it's really sweet and cute. I don't like it when people think they can sing. But can't say this is like a lot yeah. of takes. <laughs> this is like coming together. This is more of like a thesis take. A Frank if take. I had to write, yeah, if I had to write like my thesis for half big take school, I'd be I'd be halfway there. Yeah. Anyway, I have a lot of thoughts about karaoke. Um, tweet at me for more, Becca. What's your half big take? So you know how you have to leave your seat sometimes. <laughs> Dep- depends what kind of worker you are, but yes. Okay, so I often have to leave my seat, leave my computer screen, and go to meetings or do various things, go get go lunch, to the bathroom. go to the bathroom. And some people might put their computer to sleep, but I'm not going to do that because that's way too much work. But I do select the perfect tab to leave open that everyone can see. Yeah. And it ta- it's actually quite stressful. Because you like are clicking through tabs and you're like, that one's not good, that one's not good, that one's not good. Like, oh yeah, that study I was reading about like worker rights. Yeah. Yeah. Leave that up. I'm right there with you. I do exactly the same thing. I totally curate my screen when I walk away from it. And it is a lot of pressure because you need to convey that you were doing work. But like, I don't know. You also need to find something that isn't going to like, you don't want to leave your email open. No, no, no. It can't be something private. Yeah. It has to be something work related. I usually tab through for like a very uh, innocent but work related chat. Like I'm not going to leave open See, a I chat with you leave because open a chat. Oh, I'll leave open a chat if it's like a chat that is that everyone has access to. That's just mm. about like interesting. What's going on the home? No, page. mine will always be like an article or a journal. Mm. Interesting strategy. Yeah, what does your tab say about you? 
let us know. And this has been Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at RZ Greenfield. And I'm at Francesca today. Tweet at us or call us and leave a voicemail at 212-617-0166. If you like this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and rate and review and subscribe. We love hearing from you. You can also subscribe to our newsletter if you want to hear from us more throughout the week. And you can do that just by going to Bloomberg.com slash newsletters and checking Game Plan. This show was produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen, and the head of podcast is Francesca Levy. We'll see you next week. Bye. I couldn't help but wonder, <laughs> is my relationship with my employer? You know what?